Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello to you. I'm Jay Hall, and welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black podcast. I am joined today by a new friend who is a pro-democracy changemaker and CEO of Generation Citizen, which partners with schools to provide six through 12th graders with knowledge and skills they need to actively participate in our democracy. Elizabeth Clayroy, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for the invitation. Glad to be in conversation with you. Do you prefer Elizabeth or Liz? Let's do Liz. Okay, because I, I see it in the title, but I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I know sometimes that's caught me slipping sometimes. I'm like, whoa, whoa wait a minute, that's not what I meant to type. So I just wanted to get. So hello. Hello to you, Liz. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you feeling? I'm all right. Wishing that this weather make up is mine. I'm, I'm annoyed by it. It was raining and snowing a little bit this morning, and I, I need I need the weather to pick a struggle. That's what I need. <laughs> I don't mind the snow. You know, it helps with the climate anxiety. It's nice to see snow every once in a while. So I appreciated waking up to uh, some some snow in Marcus Garvey Park outside my my window. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with either or, but to see both <laughs> at the same time, as if they both showed up to work on the same schedule, that's not what I want in life. You know. I don't know exactly all the time where my taxes go, but it should go to that. That's just my take. And that's all you're going to get from me on that. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, when I was reading your title, you tell me, Liz, when you hear the word democracy, what does it mean to you? It means that each of us in our community has a say in the future. Um, it means that we are not ruled only by a few based on their birth, based on their identity, based on their wealth, but that each one of us has a say in our future, in our destiny. That, that's what it means. And, and it doesn't mean that we always get what we want, right? We know that's always been true. Being part of a democracy doesn't mean that what I think should be policy or what I think should happen with my tax dollars always happens. But it means that I get a say. And not just every four years, but that we have elected representatives that have a responsibility to represent. And that for us, and we think about helping young people see themselves in democracy, and that they can, as they grow from elementary school to middle school to high school and beyond, that they can increasingly see their voice uh, as something that is heard um, and is part of setting the future for our country. So I'm from a childhood where if one of my cousins broke the lamp and nobody told, everybody got a whooping. And that's my first memory that life wasn't fair. Because sometimes I had just got home. I was a lot <laughs> a latchkey kid. So sometimes I just got there. Right. And all of a sudden I'm getting a whooping and I was in school all day. That's my first memory of that life just is not fair. Right. Can you recall from a community's perspective when you were growing up, because reading your bio, you kind of started this work real young. Can you remember the first memory you had in your hometown where you said that's not fair? That's such a great question. So I grew up in uh, in a house um, raised by grew up in Boston. Um, raised by parents who had moved to Boston, but had grown up in um, in North Carolina um, under Jim Crow. Um, and when I was seven years old, the Eyes on the Prize documentary came out. And when I say that was on loop in my house, on loop, 
on a regular basis, I was seeing the black and white images um, and uh, of what the late 1950s, early 1960s um, looked like for Black Americans. And my parents were talking about it and on a regular basis. And so by the time I got to school and they were talking about U.S. history, I was like, well, we've been talking about this for a few years. And I share that because I think I had a recognition of that part of our history and how unjust and how unfair it was, even before I started to connect with some of the ways in which my friends and I might be followed around a store or might be treated differently from others in our community or before, you know, the, the Rodney King beating, before a number of things that I observed in my own time, I had this deep recognition of our past. And, and of course, going back b- before the 1960s and, and the long history of injustice. And so there was, in many ways, I think having a strong historical foundation is an important way that parents can support kids to recognize that what they are seeing um, in their community isn't new. It isn't just about them. And in fact, that we are a part of a long legacy um, of folks who have worked to overcome injustice and folks who have navigated oppression and are taking the next step forward in a struggle towards greater justice. Now, I'm sorry, this was not part of my questions, but you brought up Eyes on the Prize and that was my childhood too. So I had to, I had to kind of sit on that for a second because when I tell a mentee about how Eyes on the Prize was such the fabric of our childhood, you know, even when a substitute teacher would come in on Eyes on the Prize, right? And you can always pick it up where it was. Like the song is still in my head. Keep your eyes on it. It's still in my head to this day. Because that was for me, that was my first introduction to Emmett Till. That was my first introduction to a lot of things. And then, you know, the dialogue back then, I would go home and ask my mother these questions. And then she'll tell me the history when she was a child or what happened before her. Eyes on the Prize was such an awakening that was in our school. So, you know, just I had to, much love to you for bringing that one up. The second thing, um, what part of Boston are you from? I grew up in Jamaica Plain. Okay. My college roommate was from Dorchester and Mattapan. So I spent a lot of time in Beantown yeah. um, throughout my college time. So yeah, it's a, it's a, we, we can talk later after that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quiet gym. Everything shuts down at 8 p.m., but that's just legally. Because <laughs> um, I, I thought growing up in Detroit, we only we had cabarets. No, no, no. Boston gets it in. So much love to Boston and that, especially um, our, ta- our, our, our side of things, if you get what I'm saying. So yeah, um, much love to that. Much love to that. And what when it came to you watching it, I mean, what were your your parents as far as in when that spark was awakening in you, did they help guide you through that? Did they enlist you in a program or were they already active themselves? So I definitely think about my parents as my first civic mentors, but not my last. Um, my parents, absolutely. They had, as teenagers, like a lot of teenagers in in their generation, um, had also participated in civil rights protests. Uh, and they went on to follow pathways into education But for them, being community members meant standing up for what they believed. Uh, And that was something that that they continued. And I really appreciate and so grateful for the foundation that they laid for me. But I also believe that young people need 
folks beyond their family to really develop their own civic voice. So for me, as much as my parents gave me a foundation and encouraged me around the issues that matter to me, encouraged me to get involved, you know, to volunteer, to be involved with political campaigns when I wanted to be, did not get upset when I said I was involved in civil disobedience and might get arrested. They were supportive at every step. But what really I think was catalytic for my being comfortable raising my voice around issues that matter to me uh, was the role of teachers because schools are the first public square that young people spend time in, right? You're outside of the, you know, hopefully protective and supportive bubble of home. And you are in a space where there are lots of different ideas there are lots of point of view. There's lots of disagreement. And in a school setting, I think educators can play a role in, that can reduce youth voice and civic power, right? They can just tell students that it's just their role to listen and learn and absorb until they get out in the real world. And that's when they get to do things and say what they think. Or you can have teachers that do the opposite. And those teachers are civic mentors who tell young people, no, this is an opportunity for you to grow not only through what you're learning in books, but through what you're learning in your community. And we want you to bring that into the classroom. We want to bring your point of view, your ideas, what matters to you into the classroom and that that's a part of your learning. And then turn that back on the student and say, okay, we've just had this really interesting conversation about what you think about student and police relationships. So what are you going to do about it? Right. And invite students to recognize that they're not citizens in waiting until they turn 18, but that they have a voice and value in their community when they're 13, 14, 15, and encourages them to bring their voice forward in the school, in the community. And so I felt really lucky that I had a teacher who, he was a a high school African-American history teacher, but he really looked out for a lot of us and encouraged me when I was a, a freshman. And I was really shy. I was really introverted. I had a strong point of view about a lot of things, but I wasn't comfortable saying it. And he really helped draw me out and helped me recognize that what I cared about, what mattered to me was something that I should be talking about in school, was something that I, that shouldn't be silenced. That was really transformational. And so the power of teachers to be civic mentors, I think, is as important as the power of parents to really support their young people as well. That's actually a pretty interesting thing, because when I think about where you're from, I mean, Race relations in Boston is is kind of it's kind of known, you know. Coming up in that environment, where my old roommate used to say, "You can go to the store and your life can change," because of that. And so you had that teacher who gave you that guide. But when you think about education, you end up going to Columbia University, correct? Yeah. Did you carry that fire and that awareness? What was that experience like going there with this awakening? I felt really lucky to be um, both coming to New York City, which is something I wanted to do. And I think exactly what you mentioned in terms of, you know, each American city has its own journey around racial justice. Um, And Boston is absolutely has its own character around race. And I think because of that, the teacher I mentioned, Mr. Bryant, um, he led an annual trip Um, of students who wanted to go um, to come to Harlem. And he brought us on a bus and we came to Harlem for the day and we would see a show. And being in this Black Mecca was so different from Boston. 
And for me, when I started going on those trips, I was like, wait, there's a college around the corner from here? Okay, that's where I'm going. So I was really excited to come to New York City. I was excited to come to Harlem. I was excited to come, come to Columbia. And Columbia has a rich legacy of, of social justice activism from its students. I was um, a student at Columbia when Amadou Diallo was shot by the police. Um, and that was um, a, a period of deep awakening for me personally for me as a New Yorker and was grateful for civic mentors then as well, older students who were involved with local activism, who brought a, you know, a number of us from campus downtown to be part of protests. And so my commitment to social justice grew while I was, while I was in New York for sure. Um, and Columbia as well is an interesting university, it still has a more traditional core curriculum that a lot of schools have abandoned um, and that focuses very deeply on kind of Western civilization. And that was also a point of incredible debate from students of color who were saying, yes, it's important that we, you know, read the the traditional kind of Greek um, and Roman um, literature and literature from Europe. But we need additional voices, right? Those are not the only uh, foundations of our current traditions. Uh, and, and so being on campus and being involved in debates, discussions with faculty, with, with students about what the core should really look like was another debate that was happening at Columbia that as I think about my work now, actually was foundational as well, right? Because our work is around civics education and how we get young people involved. We can't get young people involved in a civics that reflects or focuses on memorization of old documents. We have to show the connection between our lived reality today and the powerful documents that have been drafted and debated in our nation over the last several hundred years and make sure to bring the life from those documents into today, right? Not only look back on history with rose-colored glasses, but in fact, wrestle with it. Um, and, and so my time at Columbia was a time when uh, students and faculty were wrestling with that curriculum. Um, and I think that is the kind of debate that in many ways is taking place today in a lot of places around civics, which is how do we really ensure that we are drawing on a diverse civic tradition as we are preparing to be a just, inclusive, multiracial democracy? Because if, if we're not, we're only talking about looking in the past, we are not putting ourselves in a position for a strong democratic future. What was that realization like? Because Columbia has this famous name, Right. You get there and then you see that the curriculum is from what I'm hearing from you, you know, outdated. It doesn't it's not inclusive when you have that understanding because and you and your fellow students are feeling that way. You and your fellow black students are feeling that way. Are you disappointed emotionally? Is it just part of the task or because you and your life personally, you have always kind of been on this trajectory? I don't think it was disappointment. I think it in, in part because it, it didn't feel new. Right. I think as students who are committed to social justice, you likely have already wrestled with some of these questions when you're in high school. Right. About the curriculum, about what you're what's being taught. And and that's healthy. I, you know, teachers, good teachers are excited when their students are challenging the syllabus. Right. And asking, why aren't we reading this and why aren't we reading that? 
So I don't think it was disappointment, but it was an invitation to teach one another, right? And I think that's what a lot of, you know, the history of um, affinity groups on college campuses is all about recognizing that, yeah, there's a curriculum, there's a, a, a pathway here, but let's make sure that we're not losing sight of other uh, materials that are, that are current, that are being made, that are being written today, right? And having that be an an area for kind of peer study and learning, right? I went to um, one of the activists who was on campus when when I was there was Adrienne Marie Brown, who has gone on to do just incredible leadership around emergent strategy, around activism um, around the country. She was a few years ahead of me at Columbia. So when I say we were learning from each other, like there were some incredible people on campus who were creating a new vision for where we could go. Um, and so it wasn't a disappointment. It was a, a, a difference in, in recognizing that all the learning you're going to do on campus is not in the classroom, right? The learning you're going to do, you're going to do in all these other spaces. Um, and that's just a way in which as a young person, if, if you decided that path, it's different if you know, you're so busy hitting the books because you're focused on engineering, you're focused on medicine, you're focused on pre-law. I was all, I, I knew that I was interested in a path around how I could be a value in the continuing struggle for social justice and civil rights. So I decided that some of my learning was going to happen in these other spaces. Um, and, and I'm so glad that I did um, because I got as much from my time outside of the classroom as I did in the classroom. So I used to work as a counselor, youth counselor for about 10 years of my life. And what I tell some of my mentees now who are getting older and making me feel old is <laughs> when you go to college, the education off campus is, can be just as valuable as the education on campus. I went to Howard. So me being around D.C. educated me, you know, in that. For you, you mentioned earlier that visit to Harlem. How much of a role did Harlem play for you as you're also in Columbia? It was it was a big role. Um, I I still and I live not far from where that bus dropped us off when I was a high school student. I get so much energy from being on 125th Street. I get energy from being in Marcus Garvey Park, from saying the name of our ancestors to um to to my my daughter and um and and having their strength be a part of. Um, my, my home. Um, and, and that definitely continued while I was at, at Columbia and, and beyond. Um, so, so gained a lot from it. And I think it's so important for, as we think about a vision for supporting students, high school students to be a part of a democracy and to strengthen democracy. That's not just about voting in an election, you know, every four years for president. Democracy is 365 days in our neighborhood, right? At Generation Citizen, our focus is on local, local, local. How can young people be involved in strengthening their local community, their city, their county, their state? And so the relationship between young people and the, their communities where they start to spend time and can feel the relationship between themselves and the local government is a really important starting place 
for this conversation about democracy. When I was a, an, an undergraduate, my major, in fact, was urban studies. I went to college thinking I was going to focus on political science because I thought that's where the work happened around social justice and democracy. But I talked to some other students. They were saying, no, that's not really what's happening there. What you're interested in uh, around how community members build power and make change and how we are conscious about the history of race in our society and the ways in which that has impacted opportunity. Those are conversations happening in urban studies. And so for me, my entry point to thinking about democracy and and what small role I could play was urban planning and pathways so that community members could bring their wisdom forward and make their communities what they want them to be. Right. Not that there is a master plan coming from someone in Washington or someone in Albany, but in fact, that community members locally are the ones who should determine the, the future of their neighborhoods. And a lot of that comes from my listening and learning and seeing that community pride and community power in Harlem. OK, so put me in the mind state of the journey of a young lady. She graduated now in Columbia. She's in New York City. You know, as a full adult, we know that looking up activism in the one ads is not something that's there. And it's not exactly, you know, promising when it comes to like paying bills. In New York, even when I lived there, it was expensive. It's always been expensive. What's the mindset like, you know, going now? Because it's, it's one thing to talk about it while we're in school and we're all like, yay. But now we come into the world. So what is Liz doing now? So Liz took a detour. Um, Liz took a detour for a few years um, uh, between um, undergrad and coming back to New York and come back to home where I live now. Um, I had a chance to study abroad when I was a, a, a junior in college. And it was a study abroad program um, that was focused on vibrant cities and, and just cities. Um, but we looked at cities around the world. And so uh, I spent time uh, studying in Mumbai and in India in Johannesburg and Cape Town in South Africa, in Rio and Curitiba in Brazil before coming back. And that was transformational for me uh, as, as an experience in feeling like a, a global citizen for the first time. It was such a powerful experience that I ended up moving to India for a couple of years after I graduated and getting involved as a volunteer in in doing community organizing around specifically, you know, what I just talked about, really ensuring that the wisdom of the community was determining the future investments. Um, In there in Bangalore, India, the focus was on spending on sidewalks on drains and and on local community infrastructure, right? Right, you know, brass tacks, the roads, how how money was being spent locally. And so that was an incredible learning experience. I mean, just, you know, a a chance to um, both learn and practice and engage and connect with um, with community members in in a community very different than the one I had grown up in. And and that was really transformational. And I I came back um, to the U.S. for my time in India and then um, had a few different roles, but Ended up coming back to Boston, where I grew up, when unlikely successful um, gubernatorial campaign for Governor Deval Patrick. And I didn't, I hadn't imagined growing up um, in Boston that we would see a Black governor of, of my home state of Massachusetts. And was so proud, not only of that transformation for the Commonwealth, but just at the campaign and vision um, that Governor Patrick had, which was centered a lot on um, listening to community voices, 
right? And not just making decisions out of the state house and sending them across the state. He ran a campaign focused on grassroots governance. And so um, I went home to, to Massachusetts and, and worked for him for a few years um, and became the director of grassroots governance um, for the governor, really looking at civic audits of every agency to say, how is each agency in the state listening to community members and involving community members in the decisions that they're making. Um, and, and that was an area of, you know, incredible pride and opportunity to really serve someone who I admire in public life, as well as be a conduit um, for more uh, programming and support that would ensure that 6 million residents of the Commonwealth and that their voices um, were coming through loud and clear around policymaking. Now, most activism starts outside. People are outside saying this is wrong and they're outside. But you actually make that transition and start working inside. Describe that little moment for you because now you're actually inside and seeing how the world is. You know, when you're young, it's very easy to have these complaints and criticisms. But when you are inside, you actually are seeing how the faucet turns on, how the door opens. What's that experience like for Liz? You know, I think... I've always been, um, perhaps because I'm more introverted by personality, um, my view of activism, m- my own skills in activism have never been about being at the front of the march and being the one with the boldest, loudest voice. My vision of activism has, in fact, been about problem solving and how can I um, ensure in, in whatever space I'm in that my role is to create conditions for authentic uh, grassroots voice and change. And, and it, so it, it isn't about advocacy that my position is, is the one and true direction we should take. But in fact, that the wisdom is, is in the commons. The wisdom is, in, is with the people. Um, and that was true in the governor's office as well. Now, I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I had a role where um, my values wherever I was working, were still very much at play, even though I was in a, a place of power in, in supporting a governor. But the vision wasn't that different from anywhere, from, from any time I had been a volunteer, any time I had been engaged in activism, any time I went on you know, to, to be in the nonprofit sector. It was just a recognition that the wisdom is with the people. And so the job of, and, and, and thankfully Governor Patrick shared that point of view, but that the job of elected representatives is to make decisions that are in the best interest of the community, do so with the best information that they have, and do so with the input of community members, um, not excluding them. Um, And so, you know, I haven't personally felt as much of that insider-outsider dynamic, but hopefully that's because I I worked for a good good person who, who shared those values. Yeah, it seems like you did. So what brought you back to New York? I wanted to come back to New York. I, so I, working for Governor Patrick was a, a gift, um, uh, but I was I was ready to come back to New York and um, and, and came back um, by choice and ready to start a family, um, which it, which I'm glad that I have. I had I've had a chance to have roles uh, and in New York that have been deeply connected to community voice and power around uh, education um, and education equity in the South Bronx, um, as well as supporting community organizing um, through the work of legal services um, that supports organizers um, around the the five boroughs. Um, And so um, I've really sought to 
opportunities to engage in deep democracy that's grounded in community members building power um, and, um, and and being able to make concrete changes um, in their lives and their conditions and in their community's future. And so um, have been in those kinds of roles over the last few years, as well as trying to be a good neighbor um, in, in my community. Um, and that brought me three years ago to, to taking on the leadership role at Generation Citizen. Yeah. And I also see before that, your leadership was building and growing because you had leadership roles in Take Root Justice, um, Phelps Neighborhood, South Bronx rising together in New York City. What was that feeling like? I loved my, my five years with um, Phipps Neighborhoods and South Bronx Rising Together. Um, South Bronx Rising Together is a collective impact effort um, focused on making um, South Bronx a, a community in which people want to um, live, work, and raise their families. Um, and it was focused on supporting young people um, cradle through college and career to, to reach their potential. And the focus was, like, how can we not only ask parents and schools to be thinking about the success of young people, but in fact, bring all community stakeholders in, right? The, the local, the pediatricians and hospital, local businesses, community colleges, and bring everyone involved with the shared vision and shared purpose of supporting young people to thrive. Um, it was an incredible, incredible opportunity. One of the, you know, some of the, the work that, that happened there and, and continues with incredible educators and, and leaders. It was a recognition that we need to ensure that we're doing a root cause analysis of, an, of issues that are presenting themselves and not only focus on um, what's surface level. So for example, there's a lot of conversation about how a number of elementary school students were missing school. Um, and a surface level conversation would say, you know, oh, there's, a, a, there's just an attendance problem. And we just have to tell people that, you know, you got to come to school. Um, and, and focus um, just on the symptom we're seeing of, you know, young kids missing a lot of school. Well, the root cause analysis approach, when you involve all different stakeholders, especially healthcare providers, looks at the crisis of asthma in the city, the crisis of asthma in the South Bronx, and recognizes that crisis is not only a crisis for the patient, right? A three-year-old who has an asthma attack in the middle of the night. But when the parents and siblings of that three-year-old sit with them at the ER until 6 a.m., and then, by the way, can't go to school the next day because their their whole you know schedule as a family has been turned upside down by an asthma attack. That we have to look at the intersection between health and early education in a way that is student centered, not in a way that is centered just on the statistics that we're trying to reach um, in, in terms of, of student attendance. And so that's one example of which there were many, but the, the beautiful and powerful thing about that kind of collective impact approach that South Bronx Rising Together and so many other groups are taking is to say, let's, in, let's have a view, a holistic view of, these, of our students' lives and of our children's lives and see what it takes to really create all of the conditions that help them thrive and not only look at test scores. Yeah. Usually when I think of community work or anything work that is of service, the first thing to come to my mind, or at least has been told to me, is the term thankless job. This is a thankless job. However, you received a, a, you know, an award in the Black Voices for Black Justice and the 1954 Beacon Award. So you got to acknowledge for what you're doing. Are you feeling pride or a little bit of anxiety that you got to hold up to these mantles? 
Um, both, both. And I would say this, the, the work I've had the privilege to be involved in never feels thankless. Um, and, and it's not about um, toiling alone. Um, this is work done in deep community with uh, partners um, and collaborators. And in my case, at Generation Citizen, an incredible team of leaders and uh, who intentionally and frequently thank each other. Right. And we thank each other and we thank our partners and, and we thank everyone who's involved with this work because we all need that. It was a, an honor to, to receive the, the awards that you named. And, um, and and certainly there is pride in any moment like that. We're being called to be our best selves. Right. Um, and But whether or not you receive an award or you're in prayerful conversation with God or in conversation with your elders or with ancestors Whatever it looks like to look within in terms of the purpose that you're trying to live your life out to be, that's where the question comes, am I doing enough? Am I serving enough? Am I contributing enough? And, and awards might be a, a moment in which that's somehow, you know, briefly externalized. Um, but for me, that's more of an inner, an inner drive, an inner question, an inner reckoning particularly as we are at such a fragile time for our democracy in 2024. Tell me about Generation Citizen. Generation Citizen is a 14-year-old organization that partners with school districts in eight states around the country. And we have a curriculum and teacher professional development that's offered to um, sixth through 12th grade educators to engage their students in experiential hands-on civic learning, right? We believe that the best way to learn civics um, is actually to roll up your sleeves and do it. You know, I talked before about how important um, local government is. Um, And so while when you're learning about civics in a textbook, you're learning about the three branches of government, you're learning about our our federal system um, and all of the different levels of government, but we believe it's important to complement that book learning with real engagement and practice. And so our focus is on helping young people develop civic skills alongside civic knowledge, as well as civic motivation, so that folks feel, so that young people feel that sense of responsibility and also that sense of agency, right? That their action can make change. And so through our curriculum, the, you know, their teachers guide them through a semester long process of identifying um, an issue that matters to them as students. They then do participatory action research to um, more deeply analyze um, what's going on in their community and and how that issue um, may be impacting um, community members. They survey their fellow students. They come to consensus as a class about the issue that they want to take on. um, And then they take action. Um, And students over the course of the last 14 years, you know, we've had um, over 150,000 students participate. They've taken action on a range of issues from mental health challenges and and seeking to have more support um, and, and more mental health counseling in schools to local transportation issues, right? Putting up a stop sign in front of a busy intersection between a school and a park or looking at issues of, you know, why the park that they spend time in 
um, is is full of garbage and advocating for you know kind of cleaner cleaner parks. We've taken on hard issues like youth homelessness and 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 hunger in schools um, and creating Friday pantries where students can pick up food um, in a, a no stigma way and bring that back to their families over the weekend. And we've had some incredible students last year um, in downtown Brooklyn um, who took on the issue of community and police relations, particularly how young people were experiencing their relations with with the police, as well as issues of community safety. And they've gone on um, to receive um, financial support to um, be able to have um, a community organization be part of community safety programming um, in downtown Brooklyn, specifically to support these students. And so we believe that at this moment for our country and at this moment for our communities, students don't need to spend a semester just reading textbooks. Students can become community problem solvers and become stronger academically at the same time. Um, and so that's what our organization is all about. We are um, really proud to partner with um, lots of schools here in the five boroughs in New York, um, as well as schools in rural communities um, and, and urban communities across the country. You've mentioned this a couple of times throughout our conversation. So I have to ask you, what is it you feel that is unique about these times that we're in now? I can guess, but what is it that you feel that's unique? I think we are in a time of of civic chaos that is playing out um, in um, in Washington, in cable news and on social media, and um, in a time when it feels as if as a result of hyperpolarization, we can't get things done, right? Whether that's government shutdowns, whether that's so much fighting in parties and across parties, that part is, is not the, the only issue, right? That there's just so much fighting and focused on um, politics and winning that it's hard for important things to get done that the American people need done. And what concern, and, and at the same time that that is happening, we are also seeing an actual erosion of a sense of trust. That erosion has been happening for 60 years. Um, Pew Research um, has, has looked at the question of, of trust both in government, but also in a range of other institutions for decades now. And trust has continued to decline. And trust has declined first in many ways um, in national government. But trust has also declined in a range of institutions, right, in, in, in media, in science, in schools, in all of these places. And trust has also declined between people, right? More individuals note that they don't believe um, that um, most Americans trust each other and that they themselves don't trust other Americans. And sometimes that's across lines of political difference, but not always. And so when we combine a uh, a crisis of problem solving through government and a real crisis of trust, as well as with the technology revolutions that are that continue to happen, of which AI is the one we're talking about the most now. But, you know, five years ago might have been something else. Five years from now, it'll be something else. But this is happening in a way that is moving so quickly that it unfortunate that because we are in these other kind of trust and policymaking deficit that makes folks feel even more concerned and in fact, more isolated, right? Feeling like there's a really small circle of people who they can trust and they can connect with. And all of that contributes to the crisis of democracy, right? We don't have to look to any one person 
to point to a crisis of democracy that, that we're having. At the same time, because I always look for hope, I, I am an eternal optimist. At the same time, we are just a few years out from one of the biggest social justice movements that's ever happened in our country. And Generation Z, while there might be polls that demonstrate that they might not be excited about a particular election, it doesn't mean they don't care about their country. It doesn't mean they don't care about their friends. It doesn't mean they don't care about issues. In fact, Generation Z is very issue oriented. And if you look at polls like the Harvard Institute of Politics poll, you'll see that young people have strong point of view about what's going on in their communities. They just increasingly are concerned about whether or not those in power are paying attention. But Generation Z is already showing up, running for office, winning elected office. And so where I am deeply concerned about what's happening at the national level in terms of um, the democratic fragility that we are navigating. I have a lot more hope when I look at local government um, and see the rising voices um, and power of Generation Z and and millennials, too, who are um, taking their uh, role in public life. And that's exactly what we're trying to help young people do, right? We see a a hands-on democracy education program as the first rung on the ladder to a lifetime of active citizenship. Right. And one of the things I notice in New York now, we culminate um, each semester um, with something called Civics Day. It's kind of like a science fair for democracy. And you see students, you know, standing around these wonderful spaces with their uh, issue on their board and all of the, um, the research they've done and the change that they want to make on these issues. And we invite community leaders um, to to serve as community advisors and, and be chief listeners to the students and hear what the students are talking about and um, and, and be willing to both give them constructive and, and helpful feedback, um, but also maybe take a step forward in, in helping them make change. And what's beautiful in New York City is increasingly the community advisors who are leaders in the community, some of them are members of the city council. They share so much in identity with the students who are presenting um, their civics projects, right? Um, New York City Council, we are seeing um, younger, more diverse, and community-rooted leadership who themselves are feeling so excited about seeing young people who graduated from the same high school they did who are now starting to become advocates for positive community change. And that's not just happening in New York City, it's happening around the country. The rising generation is taking, is ready to take their seat at the table. And organizations like Generation Citizen that are getting young people excited about civic life are helping make sure that is possible for hundreds of thousands of students around the country. I got just two more But my first one is a response to what you just named about, if I could simplify it, all of the static that's just everywhere. And it's affecting us on how we vote, our city duties, our day to day. But something else I'm seeing on the other side, which is something that I see that Generation Citizen works with in education, is the lack of critical thinking. And when when I think about Mm -hmm. curriculum, there are a lot of schools, when we talk about outdated curriculum, there are a lot of schools that are actually taking away critical thinking. And it appears, it appears we're starting to see the effects of that with our youth and with full grown adults, not being able to just simply decipher what is fake news or not, not being able to see that what they're hearing is just a bunch of trash, not knowing what's the vegetable and the vitamin and not being able to tell the difference. And it's affected in that. 
when you see something like that, or am I wrong for even thinking in that with Generation Citizen, is that something that can be considered a concern? Yes, I'm also incredibly concerned about a rise in censorship of um, both books as well as conversations that can happen in classrooms around the country. And I think that when we limit the possibility that a trained expert, right, a middle school or high school social studies teacher is an expert in helping young people in a developmentally appropriate way understand our past and understand our current um, political life. When we say they can't lead a conversation in the classroom that's inviting young people to talk about current affairs or inviting young people to talk about hard parts of our history, we are all poorer for that. We are all made, our, our entire society is made less prepared when we are graduating years and years of students who have not been allowed to have honest conversations about history in the classroom or not been allowed to read a set of books on critical moments in history or areas of understanding. Um, one of the things that I think is, is even uh, is as concerning as some of the bans that have taken place across the country, is that we are seeing some states um, both ban certain conversations in the classroom, which may be about race or gender, but also ban classroom work that invites students to contact local elected officials. And so there are states, in fact, that ban the kind of work um, that we and other civics providers do where students are encouraged to do a civic action project and contact local leaders because their point of view is that students should not get involved in civic action. And that's that's concerning because that is a type of pre-voter suppression that suggests that young people cannot contact in a thoughtful, formal, and, and education-focused way, cannot contact their elected officials and use that as an opportunity to, to practice their communication skills, can't use that kind of research to practice their critical thinking skills. And so I think that the um, attacks on teachers that are happening and attacks on librarians that are happening across the country are, are, are dangerous. I mean, I think it's dangerous for society and, um, and it's, it's unfair for a rising generation of kids. Um, you know, I worked for, for Governor Deval Patrick, as I mentioned, and he had a big focus um, on, on third grade literacy. And he used to say all the time when he talked about the urgency of this and why he wasn't willing to wait to do this in two years, he said, you don't get a second shot at third grade, right? The same is true for our 11th grade scholars in U.S. history or our eighth grade scholars in social studies who are growing up in a time of such a com complexity in terms of our political life. And if they as 11th graders want the chance to talk about the civil rights uh, era, to talk about reconstruction, or to talk about what's happening now, but their teachers are intimidated and are afraid to teach them, they don't get a second shot at 11th grade in 2024, right? And so I feel very strongly that it is critical that today's teachers have the freedom to teach and that our schools are teaching honest history because that's what creates the kind of students who take responsibility for and feel a sense of agency in their communities. Whew. I appreciate you for that. At least I know it's not just me going insane and feeling that way because I'm that friend on group chats who has to tell friends this is not true. 
<laughs> you know, you know, like that person is like, this isn't true. This isn't confirmed. Like all day long, no, Medea did not buy BET. Like things like that. It's, it's just so, yeah, I just, just want to say thank you. Um, last one, as we get up out of here, what's something we can look forward to for Generation Citizen and how can we support Thank you. Well, we would welcome um, folks, whether or not you are a teacher, know a teacher, um, know a student or a school, um, connect with us on you know, www.generationcitizen.org and, and check out our programming, our partnerships. We're um, always open to, to working with new teachers, working with new schools. The other effort that we have this year is, is called Rise Vote. Um, and it's about encouraging young people um, to, to register to vote or pre-register. There are dozens of states that allow 16 and 17 17-year-olds to pre-register to vote, or if you are 17, but you will be 18 in time for the election, um, to, to register and participate in the primaries. So know your state data. If you know young people, make sure that they are getting involved. They don't have to be 18 now. Make sure that they are taking action so that they can get involved. Because the fact is, it is so important that none of us lose our civic hope or our civic resilience as a result of what's going on this year. We've got a long way to go in terms of the, um, the, the possibility of a thriving multiracial democracy in this country, but we have to participate. We have to be a part of it. We have to stand up. So encourage folks to check out our organization, get involved, um, and ensure that young people in your life are feeling a sense of connection to their community. Okay. And where can we find Generation Citizen real quick? We're on generationcitizen.org, um, or you can find us on, on Instagram um, and, and on LinkedIn uh, and on Facebook and on Threads. Thank you very much. So, Liz, this was your first time on here. We always, always encourage the invitation to come back. This is a revolving door. And experts like you, I personally always begging to please let us know contact our producer whenever there's something that we need to be aware of. If you want to come on and you just want to express to us like, hey, this is a concern because I'm always encouraging the experts like I need you all to come on these platforms because you all are outnumbered. So we need the experts to actually step forth. And when someone with your resume, as elite as it is, like we need you out here. So thank you very much for the work you've already done. And please reach out to us for any work that we can help you moving forward. Much appreciated to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No doubt. This has been a great episode of the history of being black. I know my blackness has been elevated. I'm not going to dare to ask Liz as her blackness has been elevated because she elevated me. I usually ask the guests that, but that would be so disrespectful at this point because now I know my blackness has been elevated. <laughs> Thank you very much. Make sure you um, always follow history being black on anywhere where podcasts can be heard on Spotify on Apple Music and all the other platforms. Make sure you follow History Being Black on IG and make sure you follow me and Olaya Media on IG also as well. Me, you can catch me everywhere at Jayhaw Society. You be blessed with successful and we'll talk to you soon. Be ghosts. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.